It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quick talk. Fast talk. Street talk. Talk radio. The independent republic of Mike Graham. Radio you can believe in. Mike Graham. Speaking common sense unto the nation. On talk radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio, soon to be Talk TV of course, the world headquarters and the epicentre indeed of common sense. It's another big day in Downing Street as Boris Johnson and his aides prepare him to say sorry, something he really doesn't like doing, to the House of Commons and indeed to the nation. The Prime Minister will approach the dispatch box this afternoon, shortly after 3.30 we think, and in his own words, set the record straight on Partygate, whether he's going to get any more penalty charge notices and perhaps even when the Sue Gray report is going to come out. Some people think he might even urge for it to come out sooner rather than later. There will be howls of derision, of course, from the opposition benches who are still clamouring for a resignation and who are still smarting over Pretty Patel's Rwanda manoeuvres for illegal migrants. Ian Blackford from the SNP might be a little quiet today, of course, given that his own boss, Nicola Sturgeon, has been spoken to by the police about not wearing a mask in a barber's shop. Apparently, uh, they say no further action is required, despite the fact that she broke her own rules. And when Boris Johnson broke his own rules, she was calling for his resignation. Is this really what politics has become in this country? Is this the best we can do? Really? Uh, 0344 499 1000. Up first today, we're joined by Mail on Sunday columnist Dan Hodges with his take on the latest turner events and the shenanigans uh, around Partygate. We'll also be asking him how much of a security risk it is that Downing Street appears to have been the victim of a spyware attack from the United Arab Emirates over the last couple of years, where spies may have been listening in to what was going on inside the heart of government. Maybe we could ask them, how on earth it all happened. Maybe they know the story. Maybe that would be the place to go for some clues. We'll be also talking to Annabelle Denham from the IEA about the return to the workplace. I've been banging on about it for two years practically, but now Jacob Rees-Mogg, uh, who's apparently the Minister for Government Efficiency, <laughs> that's a great one, isn't it, is urging civil servants to return to their desks after the news emerged that as few as 20% of the workforce in some government departments is actually bothering to turn up. Laura Dodsworth is here as well. We'll get her take on God and politics and why Tony Blair thinks even more teenagers should go on to higher education. Plus, there's more woke nonsense going on and I'm not just talking about Brent Council banning balloons from the football either. 0344 499 1000. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet, soon to be Talk TV. This is, of course, Talk Radio. 
The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. And a very happy Tuesday, April the 19th to you. It's counting down to Talk TV time. It's going to be very exciting. Next Monday, uh, you're going to see Piers Morgan back on our screens. He's going to be right here at Talk TV. Tom Newton done as well. Sharon Osborne. There's a whole host of new shows coming. Uh, we will, of course, be bringing you these shows as well on the same platform. It's all over the place. It's going to be brilliant. Let's talk to Dan Hodges, uh, Mail on Sunday columnist, of course, a man who knows a thing or two about Partygate. Um, Dan, very good morning to you. What are you making of it all? Morning. It's it's one of the most bizarre ones <laughs> I, I can ever remember, to be honest, honest Mike, because it's, it's you know, normally when we sort of have, have these sort of political scandals, you know, somebody puts their point of view and somebody puts the other point of view and there are a couple of arguments and people people debate I'm not entirely sure what we're debating here this morning. No. I mean, it is, it is Boris is banking Listen, this show is always like that. You never really know what's going to happen. <laughs> it's just, I mean, you know, we just have to, you know, why, where, where did we start off with all this? We were told we had to stay at home. We told we couldn't go out. We told we couldn't party. We told we couldn't meet people. We were told we couldn't bury our dead. We were told we couldn't visit sick people in, in, in hospital. Um, and why we were told that by Boris, and we were told we had to do it because we had to keep ourselves safe. We had to keep ourselves safe. We had to keep our communities safe. We had to keep our country safe from this deadly virus. Mm. And we now know, whilst he and his you know senior age were telling us all to do that, they weren't doing that themselves. They were they were breaking they were breaking the rules. So there's that. We also now know that the prime minister misled Parliament. You know, we had that whole thing, if you remember, when Allegra scrapped Stratton, that leaked video of yeah. her saying her and her friends had been... Well, actually, it wasn't her. She had, well, didn't actually attend the party. She must uh, have been pretty the, furious at this point, by Absolutely. The way. I mean, and rightly. I mean, she the people in Downing Street had had a glass of wine, had had, had cheese in their offices. When this came out, remember how, how, how Boris did? He did his best sort of Claude Rains in Casablanca. I'm, I was outraged. I, I was shocked. Yeah. He ordered an investigation. He ordered a cabinet office inquiry, and accepted her, her resignation. We now know he was attending identical events himself, so he misled the House of Commons. But of course, on top of everything else, he broke the law. He yeah. broke his own laws. He broke the criminal law. He told us all again. Remember, everybody, wait for the police investigation. Wait for the police investigation. Well, we've had the police investigation. We've had part of the police investigation, and the prime minister broke the law. So I'm not entirely sure what the debate is here. <laughs> well, I mean, the alternative narrative, of course, is that he didn't deliberately mislead the House of Commons. So that's all right then, because uh, when he said, uh, as I think has been pointed out by the Northern Ireland Secretary this morning, what he said, he believed it to be true, which is a bit similar to Bill Clinton's. You know, when I said that at the time, I didn't believe it to be a lie because I thought it was the truth. It later turned out to be a lie, but that's not my fault. I mean, it's quite a remarkable kind of position to, to, to hold. You have to have um, a brass neck made of, you know, super, super, super brass, I think, in order to, to get away with it. But Boris does. And he's now saying um, that he still doesn't really believe that he was at any parties, but nevertheless, he's going to pay the fine. Well, yeah. Um, but I mean, let, let, I mean, let's deconstruct that. I mean, right. So he, he, he argues... When people brought in cake and sang, sung happy birthday, he didn't think that was a breach of the rules. Fine. He also argues that when he attended uh, a leaving do for, for an aid in which people were drinking and there was music, etc., he didn't think he didn't think that was a breach. 
Um, he argues that when he was doing a he was doing a quiz, you know, next to people draped in tinsel and wearing Santa hats, he didn't think that was a breach. When he found out people had been, you know, reportedly partying so hard in his back garden that they broke his own son's swing, he says he didn't think that was a breach. When he turned up at a party that was advertised as a bring-your-own-booze event, he claims he didn't think that was a breach. And when he went up to his, you know, his own flat, the Downing Street flat, walked in, and his wife and her mates were in there singing along to ABBA, celebrating the fact that one of his aides had just been sacked or just resigned, he says he didn't think that was a breach. No. So the question is, you know, what precisely did this man think think was a breach? Because remember, this was all happening at a time when people were being fined for sitting on a bench in a park yeah. and were getting buzzed by police drones just going out, going out for a And also we're getting sort of moved on in many cases. People were sitting down in parks and being told they couldn't do it. Oh, and, and remember when there was a backlash against that, Boris and his ministers stood up and backed the police. Yeah. And they said, no, I'm sorry, we've got to do this. We've got to be tough because we've got to keep the, the keep the country safe. And like I said, you know, I mean, obviously it is it is completely ridiculous and implausible for him to pretend he didn't know any of these events were breaches. But go back to the point I said before. When he saw the video of Allegra Stratton saying people in Downing Street had a glass of wine and had some cheese, miraculously... He did think that was a breach. He said he was furious. He ordered the investigation. He accepted resignations. So, I mean, he can't have it both no. ways. He, Do you not he think either, as well, though? He was, either, he, was either, he was either lying to the House of Commons when he said he was shocked, or he's lying to that was lying to the House of Commons when he said he didn't think he broke the rules. But either way, he lied to the House of Commons. Well, this is the thing. And I wonder whether it's because he was led by people's reactions to that Allegra Stratton video, because the video itself was very damning. Not so much because of what she said, but the fact that she was laughing, the fact that they all seemed to think it was a big joke, that there were clearly parties going on and they were all kind of referring to them nudge, nudge, wink, wink style. And it just looked awful. So he had to be completely and utterly horrified by that. But so far we haven't seen any pictures. And I wonder whether if the pictures do emerge that that will change people's view. Because I find well, at the moment, I, Dan, that many people have just had enough of it. They're sick to death of it. They don't really care. It's, you know, they've managed to win on the basis that enough time has passed for people just to forget about it. But there are still lots of people who are really angry. I think I, I think, I think, a lot of people are sick of it. I mean, frankly, I've, I've been writing about this for so long. I'm, I'm fairly sick of it. But it yeah. doesn't alter the facts. And I think people are... Um, I think, you know, people are very, very clear in, in, in their own mind about... what what has happened and i think the spectacle of boris i mean we'll see it today he'll try and he'll do his apology then he'll move on try and move on then we'll hear in a week's time he's privately told aides he doesn't actually think he's got anything to apologize about i mean you know we we, we, we've we've you know we've had all we've had all that before but i mean the point is i mean we know what happened we we know what happened in relation to the allegra Stratton thing he saw he what he was angry about was not what of what what happened, but that what had been going on had been revealed. Yes. And when he did the whole, I'm shocked, it was terrible, we need an investigation, I'm going to accept resignations, routine in the House of Commons, that was because he was trying to cover up for himself. 
Right, he accepted Allegra Stratton's resignation because he wanted to throw other people under a bus because he wanted to protect himself. And he knew full well, as he stood up at the dispatch box and he was saying how, how shocked and angry he was and how he understood the anger and pain of people in the country at what had alleged, what had been was had revealed to be going on in Downing Street by his aides, he knew full well when he said that he'd been doing exactly the same stuff himself. Yeah. Now, we're going to we're going to have the whole dance today through the House of Commons, we're going to have the whole dance over the next couple of a couple of days and weeks he's obviously not going to resign but it doesn't alter the fact that boris is banged to right well i don't think there's any doubt about that but i think the interesting thing for me is the way that people are sort of looking at it you know because a lot of people who defend him say well of course everybody knows he's a liar you know you elected him you knew he was going to lie and you kind of go well, it's not quite that simple, really, is it? Um, we've also got Northern Ireland Secretary, as I say, Brandon Lewis this morning, comparing what Boris did to Tony Blair getting a parking fine, um, which tells you how far, sort of far removed the Cabinet is from reality. Um, you then get Nicola Sturgeon getting spoken to by the police, a woman who has been clamouring for Boris Johnson to resign because he broke the rules. Uh, she's now gone very quiet. But I think... I think I... Look, I mean, you know, Nicola Sturgeon and 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 the, and, and the mask. I mean, my understanding is that's a, that's a, that's a one-off event. Look, let's be honest. If it was just the cake, right? If it was just the birthday yeah. cake, if it was just a one-off event, I don't think there's anyone that would seriously say, right, on that basis alone, Boris should resign, or even even be fined. The issue is, though, it was serial behaviour. It was again and again and again and again and again. And basically, the reality is they were operating in Downing Street as if the pandemic wasn't happening. Right. They were operating as if they hadn't, weren't telling us or we had to do X, Y and Z whilst they were completely ignore, ignoring the rules. And that's, you know, that is the that is the fundamental problem here. And I think, look. As I said, you know, eventually, you know, people move on with all these things that, you know, event, eventually they, people will do. But make no mistake, there will be a political price to pay for this. Now, the question is, is the political price ultimately going to be paid by Boris Johnson or is it going to be paid by the by the wider Conservative Party? Because eventually the public fall out of love with all governments and all prime ministers. And when and it will happen eventually when people finally have had their fill of Boris. This will be one of the one of the reasons, and this will be cited as one of the reasons why they why they've had enough. And as I say, the question is now: how much longer are the, are the Tories going to keep putting forward these completely ridiculous defences? I mean, as you've cited, like Brandon Lewis, it's a parking ticket. Yeah. You know, it would be much better if they basically just got up and said, "Look, he's banged to rights." Of course he should resign. He's not going to resign because there's a war in the Ukraine. Let's, let's all move on. I mean, they might as well be honest. Yeah, and there's much more to do. I've actually said uh, in the past week that I prefer Boris when he's under fire because every time he gets one of these um, parking tickets, if you want to call it that, uh, he does something which actually a proper Conservative politician should be doing. You know, he got rid of the COVID rules when he heard that he was going to get one. When he did get one, uh, he suddenly then decided it was a great idea to ship off the migrants who were coming uh, in their droves to the south coast off to Rwanda. So I'm hoping, as I've said before, uh, if he gets another one, he might do away with the net zero plan. <laughs> well, I'm not. Well, you know, I mean, if he's not getting rid of net zero now, I mean, when is he going to? Yeah. No, I mean, but I think, but I think you've, you've, you've touched on a, on a good point, and I, you know, I've said it, and I've been criticised for it. That you know, the argument that Boris, for all his faults, gets a lot of the big calls right, 
is 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 accurate. You know, he 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 delivered Brexit when everybody said Brexit was um, the insoluble problem. More broadly, I know a lot of people disagree with me on this, but more broadly, I think across the the range of the the, the, the pandemic. I think he got most of the big big calls right on the pandemic pandemic as well, particularly in relation to the you know obviously the obviously the vaccine and the support um, that people were given during lockdown. And he did rightly resist calls, if you remember where we were at Christmas to lock to lockdown again. I think he got that right. Ukraine, obviously, he's been you know he has been you know contrary to what everybody was expecting, he has been leading you know the global response on that. And as you said, I mean, you know, we, we, we've probably come onto it, but I mean, the you know, the Rwanda plan is something that a lot of people said, you know, you could, you know, was again was undeliverable, couldn't couldn't, couldn't be put together. So on all those things, it's absolutely right. It doesn't alter the fact he broke his own rules, he lied about it, and he basically told all of us to do things that he wasn't prepared to do himself. And that he knew when he was telling us to do them that he wasn't doing, which I think is even more important, actually. Dan, stay with us for a second. We're going to take a little break. Uh, We'll be back with Dan Hodges from the Mail on Sunday after this. We need your calls, of course, as well. Boris is making an apology this afternoon. What kind of apology is it going to be? Uh, What's he going to put in there? How is he going to sort of soften uh, the blow, as it were? 0344 499 1000. This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio. Spreading your opinions. These boots were made for talking. Listen on DAB+. Plus. Watch on your smart TV. Talk Radio. Here we go. A quick shop at a local BP. A scan of a BP Me rewards card. She's got her promotion code. Back home now. Hubby's got his feet up. Some tired legs out there. Sidesteps the dog and squares up to the laptop. The code goes into the box and it's there! <laughs> She's won a pair of Premier League tickets! I don't see this very often. Well, actually, there's a pair to be won every hour and a half. At the end of the day, it's all about 90 minutes. Scan your BP Me rewards card between 6am and midnight for the chance to win Premier League tickets. Close the 2nd of May 2022. Full T's and C's at bpmerewards.co.uk slash scan to score. Tonight's Euro Millions jackpot could make your dreams come true. But not the dream where you're naked at work. <gasps> no! The one where you're relaxing on your own luxury super yacht. That's dream come true, man. Euro Millions from the National Lottery. Play on app, online and in store. Account terms, rules and procedures apply. Players must be 18 or over. Pizza. Food's here. Oh, great. I'm starving. Right, you look. Come on in. Uh, One at a time. That's it. Pile the pieces over there. Um, Careful, Shaz. Don't drop stop. them. Stop. You next, still Stack them up. Stop. That's it. Pile those pieces. Stop. What's all this? The pieces you rang for. Where's the rest of you? What do you mean? You said bring enough for 200 people. Hungry. I said two hungry people. Oh. Need a hearing test? Should have gone to Specsavers. Book online today. Um... Where do you want the garlic bread? Your way from driveway to motorway. Talk Radio. Travel update. Towards Bradford, the delay should be easing now. M62 onto the M606. They've managed to reopen it before Junction 3 at the Stathgate roundabout. South Yorkshire travelling south on the M1. A broken down van before Meadow Hall at Junction 34. Shropshire, there's no access on the A5 east from Dobby's Island to the A458. Closed because of an earlier accident. In Hook, Surrey, the Kingston bypass is closed west. That's the A309 towards a turn off the Hinchley Wood. I'm Sarah Elliott. However you start your day, head over to Dunnell now for 20% off selected curtains and blinds and lots more cracking savings too. That's home, done your way. Visit us in-store or online at dunnell.com today. 
Talk Radio. At last, a radio station that's on your side. Arm yourself with knowledge. Listen or don't listen. Wide Angle Radio. Let's broaden our minds. Talk Radio. The home of common sense. Now on the telly. Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. We're going to be talking about working from home very shortly as well. Annabelle Denham's here from the IEA. We're going to talk about what Jacob Rees-Mogg has discovered, which is that in some government departments, only 20% of people are actually bothering to go back into the office. Uh, but let's talk to Dan Hodges, uh, who's uh, talking about Boris Johnson. His apology It's going to take place a little bit later on. Um, Dan, as far as how he puts it, how he frames it, we're told he's going to sort of put a lot of other things around it, as it were, so that it's not the kind of set piece of the afternoon, if you like. How do you think he's going to do it? Yeah, I think that's exactly what's going to happen. I mean, he's going to do it. He's going to do a general response on a number of issues that have come up since um, the House last sit. He'll obviously talk a lot about Ukraine. He'll talk, I would guess, about Rwanda. He'll issue his apology. And then if Keir Starmer comes back and focuses on Partygate, he'll, he'll do a couple of words in response. And then he'll attack Keir Starmer for not focusing on what he he Boris regards as the, as the serious issue. So again, as ever with Boris, what has been billed as an apology will actually turn out to be you know a non-apology. Right. Um, I don't think, however, that that is going to be enough for him um, because you know this isn't again. If this was just the end of it, I mean, again, this whole let's move on sort of thing. If this was going to be the end of it, maybe, but it's quite clearly not going to be the last fine he gets. The The other events he's going to get fined for are quite clearly going to be much more serious than just somebody bringing in a cake and, you know, for nine minutes and singing a happy birthday. Right. I mean, they are will quite clearly be, as I said, almost identical in nature to the to, to, to Allegra Stratton um, event. You, as it touched on in the opening, we've still got Sue Gray report to come and also i mean i think one of the things i think people are forgetting is obviously we've had all this talk about about letters going in how many letters are going in speaking to the people who were who were organizing against boris earlier in this in this crisis they are they are clear they were very very close to getting the the 54 names that were needed to trigger a, a, a leadership contest a handful of people have some people have taken them out but they're still starting from a much higher bar this time. So there's yeah. still about 40 or 45 names in. So. so it doesn't actually take that many new Tory MPs to think, right, this is a this is a breaking point. I mean, speaking to Tory MPs last week, you know, it was an issue that was again resonating, you know, on the doorsteps in the, you know, in their email accounts. They, they were getting a significant response again from the public. Um, and also you, you're putting this whole crisis against the backdrop of, a government that is really starting to lose its way. Yeah, you know the, the highest tax rises since the 1940s, worst cost of living squeeze since the 1950s. You know, Rishi Sunak threatening to resign just about every other day. Um, so, and one day uh, that will be accepted, presumably. And one, and one day Rishi will finally think, oh, "What's the point of go off and cash in his green card and you know decide to decide to wander off?" So. You know, all of these things, and I think whilst there's a lot from Boris supporters of, oh, you know, we're moving on, everybody's had enough of it. I, you know, I think I think he's, Boris is still, still has a lot, is is in greater political trouble this morning than I think a lot of people realise. 
And that's the thing. And what about the, the, the next sort of stage, I suppose, for a lot of Tories? I mean, Tobias Elwood touched on it today. He said it might be a general election that the, the backlash comes, but it might come um, next month with the local elections. But I don't see that knocking him off his perch either, really. Well, I think there's a couple of things. I mean, the, the whole thing about local elections is it's all about expectation management in terms of the broader politics. And frankly, it's impossible to see how much worse and lower expectations could be for the Conservatives going into this election. So that is an advantage Boris has. The disadvantage, though, is something that, that, that a Tory MP said to me a couple of months ago, which is you've got to understand Conservative MPs' relationship with Boris is entirely transactional. There aren't actually that many MPs who are instinctively friend, his friends or instinctively, instinctively like him. The reason they stick with him is they think he's a winner. I think Boris can, you know, touch those, reach those parts of the electorate other politicians just can't reach. If he gets an absolute shellacking in the local elections, then this argument about Boris being able to defy political gravity, Boris can, you know, Boris can read the runes in the red wall, Boris can, you know, reach out to red wall voters. That whole perspective is going to shift. And at that point, if the Tories see in Boris a politician who, who who can't, you know, has lost the magic touch with the electorate, then you'll see them move and move, I think, a lot, a lot more quickly than many people expect. Yes, I think that's always the way, isn't it? And at the end of the day, um, you know, people saying, oh, why do you keep going on about Partygate? Well, it's because Boris Johnson is, 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 is getting up in the House of Commons today to apologise for something that he did. And I'm sorry, if you're out there listening to this show and you don't think that's an important story, that the Prime Minister is about to apologise to the nation for breaking the rules that he made everybody else do, then you're up a gum tree, aren't you? Well, I mean, if, if you don't think that all the rules we were told, you know, that whole period for two years when we were basically locked in our homes if you don't think that was important if you don't think it matters whether or not what people say in the house of commons is is honest or not and if you don't think it matters whether anybody whether the most senior politician in the land breaks the law then fine obviously you, you know in that in that sense fine then 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 knock yourself out i mean i, I just happen to think and it doesn't matter where you sit on the political spectrum i think these 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 things do matter. I think they matter quite a lot. Yes, well, quite. And finally, um, I guess we should go over to Dubai and uh, see what they've got on uh, Downing Street because they might have all the answers. They could have everything in there in a little file. Uh, yeah, although I saw this story. I mean, I was reading it and it said that they, you know, they checked, they checked all the all the all the most, you know, Boris's phone, everyone else's phone, couldn't find that they'd actually got into those. I mean, if you do, rem- if you do remember, I mean, it wasn't that long ago when people realised the big security risk was Boris still basically had the phone he'd had for the last 20 yes. or 30 years. He'd been giving out his phone number to anybody. Right. And anybody he wanted could just basically ring him up and have a chat with Quite him. Quite a few so, women, probably. Yeah, well, <laughs> well yeah, I'm not going there. But, I mean, but, he could, but so, you know, they may have, you know, in Dubai, they may have been spending all these billions on all this technology to hack his phone. They could just have, they could have basically just gone through director inquiry. I mean, didn't somebody, get, didn't somebody get pranked as well uh, in the cabinet by some... Ben Wallace got pranked by uh, by some mysterious Russian, uh, you know, a, a, a couple of weeks ago. Um, I mean, obviously, it, it it is you know it is serious in relation, you know, obviously because given that given the current international situation as well. Um, but you know, frankly, people are always going to try try doing this this you know this sort of stuff, and you know, and I think also you know the other thing is, you know, what 
what frankly could they can, could they hear from Boris that would embarrass him and and sort of compromise him politically more than the things Boris has already done and already already said openly right you know i mean we you know we keep having this grand conspiracy theory about you know the russians have got all this great compromat on boris well when are they going to start using it well exactly you think now would be the time wouldn't you yeah, he's not exactly acting as Putin's best mate at the moment. He really isn't. No, absolutely not. Well, listen, Dan, good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. We should be watching this afternoon live here on Talk Radio, of course. You'll be able to hear Boris Johnson uh, making his apology, his mea culpa uh, for all of the things that he did wrong, for many of the transgressions he's admitted to. We'll see how he does it. It'll be a fascinating afternoon. You'll hear it all right here. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let's talk to Annabelle Denham, Director of Communications at the IEA. Annabelle, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, Now, whenever I do stories about working from home, people always point out to me, particularly if we're on video, which we're not this week, um, well, the person you're talking to is working from home. (laughs) So um, I don't wish to ask you that. You don't have to reveal that if you don't wish to. But there's a big problem about this uh, business, particularly in the public sector. Jacob Rees-Mogg has finally said what I've been saying for, for literally months. Get back to work, people. Yeah, he has. I mean, Mike, ultimately, the government is now trapped in a web of its own weaving. It's going to look hypocritical, whatever it does. If you cast your mind back to, I think it was September 2020, we had the Prime Minister insisting, barely halfway through the pandemic, that if workers didn't return to their workplaces, they would risk being fired. And now, over 18 months later, we hear that only 25% of Department for Education workers are going into the office. So there's pretty terrible double standards here. But on the one hand, you've got Jacob Rees-Mogg saying that having civil servants back in their departments will boost productivity, that it's owed to the taxpayers who are paying for those buildings, that they'd be full of workers. And I have a lot of sympathy with that argument. But at the same time, you've got a government that's seeking to make hybrid working the default. So imposing essentially different rules on the private sector to the public sector. It's introduced a right to request flexible working from day one, which is going to place the onus on the employer um, to explain why it is that they might be denying these requests on penalty of going to an employment tribunal. So you can see that it's sort of one rule for what the government wants and a different rule for everybody else. Although now it's slightly the inverse of what it was back in back in 2020. Um, my, my, my view is that we simply don't need the government wading in with one size fits all legislation on, on the private sector, bringing in new legislation around right, right to flexible working, right to a four day week and so on and so forth, especially when it's not practicing what it preaches, because here we are hearing about how many civil servants are still working from home. Well, this is the thing. I mean, Jacob has put out um, a league table of how many people yeah. were working the week beginning April the 4th. So it's right up to date. The Department for Education is worst of all. 25% of staff coming into work each day with the rest of working remotely. Followed by the Department for Work and Pensions, 27% of staff coming into the office. Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, 31%. Department of Trade had the most at 73%. Department of Health, 72%. Um, and even his own department, uh, the Cabinet Office, 69%. Yeah. I mean, I find it extraordinary. But what I think I'm, I'm seeing as well here is an awful lot, as you say, of, of individual employees saying, well, we don't want to come back to the office. 
Well, no, I think there's plenty of that. And attitudes have really shifted over the course of the pandemic from what is best for the employer and the employee to the expectation that employers are going to provide jobs that afford people a certain lifestyle, um, be that through the remuneration or allowing uh, flexible working. And I think that we've got to to move back to a situation in which it, it is mutually beneficial. We have thousands of voluntary arrangements already between employers and employees about whether the employee works four day week or whether they work full time or whether they work from home or whether they work in the office. And that's absolutely fine with me, provided it's mutually beneficial. What I don't want to see is more legislation being placed onto employers that could disincentivize job creation, uh, all in the name of enhancing workers' rights um, for those who are already in their jobs. And of course, Mike, I mean, the other side to this is you have a challenge with the civil service where it's very difficult to measure productivity. You have this economy wide, but it's particularly difficult in the public sector. But certainly there are areas where we could see massively limited access to the services that we, the taxpayers, are paying for. So we had that story in The Times a couple of months ago about hundreds of civil servants at the DVLA who were doing no work on full pay for significant periods of the pandemic. And managers were boasting of watching Netflix at the public's expense. Um, We had job centres that only went back to their pre-lockdown hours in April 2021, having previously been cut uh, to 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. So those, you know, that's just a couple of examples of the impact of civil servants not being uh, in the office at their desks, able to provide the services that, that we, the taxpayers, are paying for. Um, but I'm sure that there are, there are many others. Meanwhile, of course, lorry drivers, uh, those stacking supermarket shelves, and indeed frontline staff uh, in the NHS say police, fire, they were all going about their everyday lives. So I don't see why it is that we have have had different rules for some civil servants than we have for other members of the workforce. No, exactly right. And as as our caller, Brian, just said, I wonder whether some of them who are still now living outside of London, but who are working from home, are still getting the London waiting allowance. Well, yeah, that's another question of how long they will continue to do so. Of course, certainly what I've read, there are a lot of complaints from workers, be they in the private or public sector, about how much it costs to commute now. Um, And yes, rail fares are quite expensive, but people, I mean, how do they expect train services are run? It's not with fairy dust and by elves. Um, it, It does cost money and those costs are passed on to those who avail themselves of, of the services. Um, so I think we will sort of hear a lot more of com- more complaining from workers about how much it costs to commute, how rental values are, um, or rent prices are lower outside of the city. Um, and that will continue to put pressure on employers to permit them to work flexibly and from home. But as I said before, it needs to be in the interests of both the employer and the employee. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm sorry, if you want to get a job in a business and you don't like the hours and you don't like the location and you don't like the commute, (laughs) then don't do the bleeding job. Get a different job. I mean, mean, we get told told all the time. I was in the pub the other day. They can't get any staff because there's nobody that they can hire. I don't know why that is, but, you know, there's shortages in every single business that I talk to, right? There's plenty of jobs around. If you don't like travelling, then don't travel. No, I I completely agree. Um, but I think there we had... 
the sort of great resignation over the course of the pandemic, which is where people seem to spend more time at home, um, their priorities perhaps shifted, their expectations from work changed. Mm. Um, and I, I think what we will see is those people moving into other jobs, but there's been a bit of a lag, which is what part of the reason why we've got so many job vacancies. I think there will ultimately be a correction where... Uh, people have to appreciate that if they want to go for a job and that job is in a certain location paying a certain wage then then those are the terms and of course they're welcome to try and negotiate them um, to terms that better suit their needs but they may not be um, successful Um, but you know it's still I find very shocking that so many workers were able to work from home during the pandemic, we need to bear in mind that there are plenty of people who still aren't able yeah. to work from home for, for whom, you know, all of this is a luxury that they can ill afford. Um, but I think need to accept that, you know, this clamour for new ways of working from a four day week to a right to de- disconnect, um, you know, it, it might be short lived. I hope it, it's short lived, but it's certainly intensified over the past couple of years. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. Annabelle, good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Annabelle Denham, Director of Communications at the IEA Institute for Economic Affairs, of course. Andy says hybrid working is now mainstream in the private sector for office workers. I don't know a single person who goes to the office five days a week. Well, I think there's something wrong with that, to be honest. I mean, why don't people want to go to work? I think it's very, very bad for the economy. I think it's bad for our society because what you're going to do eventually is create a two-tier system where the only people who actually work are the blue-collar workers, the working classes, the people who have to go and drive buses or taxis uh, or delivery vans or the people who have to work in shops or restaurants, the people who don't have office jobs, they don't sit around at home with their little laptop in the garden and their cup of you know, soy latte. I'm sorry, I don't think it's good for the business of Britain. And I think you have a duty, particularly if you're in the public sector, to get back to work. You know it makes sense. This is Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So the great thing is you can't see Laura Dodsworth pointing a finger at me accusatorily <laughs> uh, as if to say that I said something out of order, which I don't oh. think I did, did I? Oh, you're so funny. I am I am pointing at you, Mike you Graham. You are. You telling the nation are sitting in a dark room with we Laura are. Dodsworth. So I have just tweeted a picture of us on opposite sides of a well-lit professional radio well, stu- it, studio. Well, it feels dark to so. me and because we have technically gone dark, yeah, yeah. you see, um, because know, normally right. I could look out that window Uh, up on the top of the tower and see the Tower of London and see the weather. And I can't see anything apart from uh, my fair producer through the glass there. And your um, fair guest. And my fairy fair fair guest. guest. So uh, to me, it feels like a dark room. Well, it is. And it's really old school. It is, This is like turning up to the BBC in the old days. when You're in a brown, soundproof, egg boxy type cupboard talking to somebody somewhere else in the country. Down a lot of mysterious stairs. This is very old school, but there's something quite cool about it, a bit bunker-esque. Mm. Like, we're in the bunker of common we sense are. today. We are. It is. I like yeah. that. The bunker of common sense. But we're not in the home. We're in the bunker of common yeah. sense. We're in we the are. subterranean subterranean sanctitude yes. of sense and Yes, because there isn't a lot of it right going thinking. on, is there? I mean, no. we've had a weekend of Extinction Rebellion holding up bridges all over the place. We've had a whole week, really, of that. Uh, which I presume is stopping today because they've all gone back to school. And I don't mean the kids, <laughs> I mean the actual teachers. Right? Uh, and uh, we've had loads of people in the NHS not going to work over the weekend, uh, despite the fact that we were warned it was all going to be overwhelmed because we were all going to get COVID, which didn't happen. Oh. Um, Boris Johnson's apologising for something he says he didn't do uh, later. 
No, well, bad luck. He's paid the fine, so that's tacit. That's tacit tacit admission. um, admission. So, no, but let's move on from that because, as usual, Mike, I have got ideas popping out of my ears. I'm fizzing. I've got too much to talk to you about to contain it within half an hour. Okay. That's enough chitter chatter. All right, then. Let's get to it. Let's get on with it. Um, Yeah, I wanted to talk about Tony Blair because this man just won't go away. I mean, you know, we rid ourselves of him as Prime Minister, but there he's popping up yeah. all over the place as the Tony Blair Institute, foisting his proposals upon us. Now, I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. You know, I don't like it when people have this hyper-partisan approach and say, oh, if so-and-so is saying this, it's a bad it's idea. It's all wrong, yeah. But I'm afraid I have developed this kind of intrinsic reaction to Tony Blair mm. that if he's proposing something, it's got to be a terrible idea for the country. Yeah. And so I've been really, really thinking about this. Now, he has suggested that 70% of all pupils need to go to university. This follows on from 1999 when the Blair government set an official target that 50% of pupils should go to university. The reason now is the same as the reason then. He believes it will increase economic productivity. The basic reaction I have to this is that if 70% of pupils go to university, that actually degrades what a degree... It does. And it already has done that, hasn't it? It already has done that. Now, one way of looking at a degree... Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com educational theory is that it's a signal a degree is a signaling device uh-huh. um it's a very expensive one too it signals that you're hard working that you're bright you've got basic social skills so it's just a way of sorting the wheat from the chaff for employers but if lots of people do a degree then the new degree becomes a master's it does. or a postdoctorate yes. and in fact and also it may signal something completely different now it may signal that you've spent three or four years doing not very much of anything and qualifying with a degree in something which isn't really very interesting at all. Uh, And it's simply letters after your name for no apparent purpose. Well, the problem is that the country's got a skill shortage. So you say you're going to have a degree, which shows you've got some, hopefully some, uh, you know, a a good level of education attainment, some critical thinking. But um, latest research from BDO, the accountancy company, has found that over a quarter of businesses say the biggest challenge facing them in the next six months is a skill shortage. Mm. They're having trouble finding people with the right skills. So if that's where we are now, why is educating more people to degree level going to help yeah it's not at all all it's going to do is create more people who want to work from home and we've been having this conversation yeah. in the first hour because this uh, reese mogg paper which he's produced the league table of of civil service departments and how slowly they're getting people back to work you know i was saying if you don't like where you work if you don't like the commute if you don't like the hours then get a different job there's plenty of jobs going but mm-hmm. what you shouldn't be doing is working in a place where they say it's all right for you not to bother coming in mm. you know yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, that's that's another issue. What does it even mean? I, I've got a son coming up to university age, and I would have always thought this is a straightforward decision. I went to university, his dad went to university, he's a bright boy, we want him to go to university. Mm. Or do we? Yeah. So he said recently he's not sure he wants to go. 
And I, and this is the kind of thing I'd have thought when he was younger that I'd have gone, oh, yes, you do. You want to go yeah. to university. And I'm thinking, well, do you? I'm, I'm, I'm really not sure it's the right thing to do. Now, what I'm going to say next sounds really strong. Okay. And I think people are probably going to react one way or another to this. But I'm beginning to see university education as a form of indentured servitude. Yes. The amount of debt they saddle themselves with puts them into a negative wealth situation for years. So there was a great recent... Um, report in The Sun about student loan debt in the US and we really need to look at the US Mm. because they're ahead of us on this debt. There are 44.7 million Americans who've got a student loan debt of about £30,000 at the time of their undergraduate degree but the thing is the cost of college education has gone up over 600% since 2000. In the US or here? In the US. But don't think it's not going up here. I mean, you might have seen there was um, there were reports last week about a brutal interest rise in the UK, and um, student loan debt is going to be going up about twelve percent in the next year right. for students here. Mm. Um, so those who are earning over forty nine thousand, their interest rates are going to go up um, from four and a half percent to twelve percent. But also, so That's many people huge. as well come out of university. And don't get a, a well-paid job because they're simply still going in as entry-level graduates into a business. And even in the media business that we're in, you can get a job here as a graduate trainee or something, but you're not getting paid very much. You're not even getting paid enough to pay back the debt. Yeah. And in the end, I mean, I'm with you. I mean, my oldest son, who lives in California, it took him a while to figure out what he wanted to do, but he didn't go to college. He didn't go to university. He didn't want to. Um, but he's now got a great job doing something he really likes, and he's 27. Um, and it took him probably until he was about 25, 26 to work out that that was what he wanted to do. Mm. And he's very happy, though. You know, he's not like he hasn't been spending the last four or five years, you know, wondering where it all went wrong. You know, he's had a great life. He lives in Southern California. You know, he skateboards. He plays in a band. He's got a nice girlfriend. You know, life is good. Um, and he, he has not suffered an iota by not going to college. I think these top-down targets, a.k.a. Tony Blair, they're all very red tractors. Yeah. They're all very agricultural limits. You know, it's very Stalinist. Mm. You know, I really think the individual's got to think about what's right for them. It wasn't, you know, your son's taken a different course of action. My son's really ambitious and focused. Now, university might be the right way to get him where he wants to be, or it might not. The problem is that the amount of debt that students are leaving with is stopping them from crossing other important milestones in life, like buying a house, getting yeah. on the property ladder, right. starting a family. And is 70% of our population getting a degree which then degrades the value of a degree and and launches them into this debt economy the right thing for them i'm not sure it is I don't so think i've been it trying is. to think about what tony blair said try not to react just cuz it's tony blair um but i feel very cautious about this being the right course of action in fact i think we should be probably looking at having stricter entry level requirements for universities not more relaxed yeah. and addressing our skill shortage and more vocational right. training. And also, you know, let's not forget that the reason he did this was really to create education as business. And all of these colleges now are run like businesses. You know, if they don't get enough students going from here, they start outsourcing, getting students to come from foreign foreign countries, which used to be a minority of students, but is now quite a lot large number because Mm. they need more and more money and of course when the government said you can charge up to nine thousand pounds a year what did they do they all went okay it's nine thousand quid exactly that's the limit they didn't go we'll charge you half and everybody knows the university of north london i'm not just picking on that it just happens to be one i used to drive past every day everybody knows it used to be north london poly Mm. you know it's not a university i don't care what anybody tells me (laughs) it's not no that's it there's this this is kind of degradation in in standards 
Um, I feel sorry for young people that they're not getting the experience that, that we did. I mean, I, I think if you want to go in pursuit of absolute academic excellence, critical thinking, research, and also it's a big social experience. Those are valid things, uh. but it's such a huge consideration now with the amount of debt you'll saddle the yourself with. The other problem with. now, though, is it's so woke as well. I mean, so many of these places oh, now are fostering this ludicrous, you know, groupthink where you can't even be an individual. So I'm not even sure that you would grow as a person by going to a university and having great arguments into the night while you sit around the campfire, you know, and do whatever you do. Because that's what it used to be like, where you would all kind of discover each other and discover things that you didn't know. Whereas now, you're supposed to go into a room and think the same as everybody else. God's honest truth, I wouldn't go to university now. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I'd get started on work. And the thing is, you can do... um, online courses you can do so much reading but I don't want to dissuade young people who feel universities for them I don't think it would be for me now if I look at how universities did lockdown um, look at how woke things have become the cost of it it's not the experience yeah. we had and I think that's really sad and also is it not how uh, now become a very middle class endeavor because one of the few sort of sec- sections of people who can go are people who have got reasonably wealthy parents absolutely and if you haven't got reasonably wealthy parents you're not going I know. I mean, I got a grant. Yeah. I didn't have to pay tuition fees. Right. Um, I had a, had a single mum, got a grant. I left with a very low level of debt. The other thing is I worked all the way through university. I'm not sure that so many young people have that expectation. I did. I worked in the student union yeah. or, a bar, or a bar all the way through. I ran the worked in my holidays. turned it into a tabloid. Did you get paid for that? No. You turned it into a tabloid. I of course into a tabloid. you did, Mike I, I, when, I, when I got it, it was like it was the sort of same size as Private Eye, and I just went, "That's not, that's not for me." Made it into a tabloid. <laughs> Consistently attacked the student union, um, and uh, used to sell them letter set that my father gave me for free from uh, um, from the Evening News where I used to work, and that was how I kind of funded my uh, drinking habits. Good for you. Good for you. It wasn't technically a crime, I don't think. I, well, I, I funded my drinking habits by being uh, bought drink by customers in the pubs where I worked, also right. learning to pay for my university. But talking about God's own truth, which I did, we need to talk about Archbishop We do. Of but you know what we're going to do? We're going to take a little break. We're going to stop because we're practising for taking breaks properly um, and on time, which oh. we're not very good at it's here. It's very disciplined in the bunker, isn't it? I know, it? it's very disciplined. Okay. It's all different down here. Um, <laughs> Laura Dodsworth is here. We'll talk about uh, God politics and the archbishop coming next talk radio standing up for the little guy full contact common sense conversation smart speaker smart tv we're on your side powered by common sense talk radio Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Lord Dogsworth is here with me. We're going to talk about God, which is not something we talk about very often, actually, because uh, Archbishop Welby thinks apparently God is a socialist and reads The Guardian. Oh, definitely thinks he reads The Garden. I mean, I don't think we could have a greater parody of a left-wing bishop <laughs> than Justin Welby. So in his Easter sermon, he said that... Um, Christ's resurrection was not the time for, I quote, subcontracting our responsibilities. He was speaking about the UK's Rwanda asylum plan. Yes. Now, I don't have a problem at all with religious figures weighing in on politics. They've been doing it since Jesus. It's just that his views are so predictable. He's such an empty vessel on everything from diesel to... um, trans rights to he was also, asylum. Was he, not, he was very anti-Brexit, no, wasn't he? 
oh, he's a total yeah, Ramona. So you just know what his views are going to be. And from the way I speak, people might think they know what my views are going to be. But until I tell you, you don't necessarily know. But you always know what Justin Welby's views are going to be. I thought that describing this asylum plan as ungodly was deeply unfair to yes. all the nuance involved in the plan. Absolutely. I think that Christians can support this plan if they see it as a valid way to support safe and sustainable asylum right. and immigration, whereas hundreds of people crossing daily by dinghies is not safe no. or sustainable. He also said... It's not a particularly Christian way to behave either. He also said there are, seriously, um, there are serious ethical questions about sending asylum seekers overseas. Well, has he commented on the ethics of um, these asylum seekers making it from France to... From Eng- well, you know, what about from the people traffickers who, are, who are forcing them to be, to be actually getting into the dinghies and in the, the first place? the people traffickers, exactly. Yeah. So he's focusing just on one aspect of a very nuanced situation... Um, the, the problem with him as well is he's surrendered to establishment thinking, in my eyes, for, yeah. the, last, for the last couple of years utterly, on lockdowns, on vaccines. Um, he also used his sermon to talk about the cost of living crisis. How dare he talk about the cost of living crisis when he said nothing against lockdowns or quantitative easing for the last two years? Well, as somebody Does pointed he out to me on this... why we're in a cost yeah. of living crisis? Well, one of the things that was pointed out to me yesterday was the first thing he did during lockdown was lock all the churches uh, and shut them all down and nobody could go and worship which for a lot of people is quite important right so exactly he's talking finally he's he's mentioning god again he's talking about christ's resurrection at easter but two years ago easter 2020 the church shut its doors which i think for a lot of people of faith was really quite yeah. bewildering that at the time of the resurrection the church would shut its doors frankly at the moment i'm sure many congregants are wondering why they would bother going back yes. when the church shut its door to them i mean and let's not forget that it's a very short while ago he said it was immoral not to be vaccinated yes which completely ignores the individual conscience that some christian people might want to exercise about the Absolutely. vaccine i know that's a minority faith view but, but it is point. a valid faith yeah. view and he's got no right to speak over people's individual conscience no also he doesn't speak for god i'm sorry whether he thinks he does or not he doesn't speak to god either you know i'm afraid there's quite a lot of people in this country who don't think god even exists he's so not, for him yeah. to use god as some kind of a sort of moral measurement of whether policy for a government is right or not is ludicrous, isn't yeah. it? Patently. He, he's not He's not God's mouthpiece, he's the left's mouthpiece. Yeah. And I think that the way he spoke about this being ungodly will be deeply offensive to Christians who support yes. this plan. Because while there are good sides and there are bad sides, it's complicated, but just to just decry it overall as ungodly was, was rude and unwanted. I mean, effectively, he's basically said, if you're a Tory supporter, you're not a you're Christ- proper Christian. You know? Yeah. And... and um, I think it was um, Rowan Williams, the previous Archbishop of Canterbury, who was interviewed um, the other day, and he said um, that it was sinful. The actual policy was sinful. I mean, what's wrong with these guys? I, I just I just don't know. Um, and then, you know, we, we've seen in the news recently about Calvin Robinson, who's a commentator who's been on talk radio yeah. a number of times, um, is having trouble with his ordination, hasn't been given a curacy because it turns out his views are too um, orthodox and right-wing. Yeah. I mean, frankly, they need more people like that. They of need more, they, do. they need more plurality in the church. Yeah. So anyway, that's God. But it's literally trendy vicar time, isn't it? It's just get the get the guitar out, start singing Kumbaya, and ban all Tories from Westminster Abbey. You know, that's where he's going. That's where that's where it's all going to end up.
well you just i think that the church is making itself more and more irrelevant all the time it's it's out of touch with how people feel um it's out of touch with how people truly feel about policies and what's important to the country exactly right that's that's god let's go on to sex okay you know me mike we always like to cover the big subjects don't we so the daily mail reported um yesterday that the um an nhs trust it's um Brighton and Sussex, which won't surprise you, I think. It won't surprise me. Is um, using what they call additive, gender-neutral, inclusive language. The problem with this inclusive language is it's anatomically wrong and it's culturally weird and it's quite demeaning to women. So midwives are being discouraged from saying the word vagina Mm -hmm. when dealing with pregnant transgender patients. Now, the thing is, the word vagina is just an anatomically correct word for the body part. It's just a noun. It's a medical word. It's it's just an anatomically correct word. It's like arm, isn't it? But this is the astonishing thing, Mike. They're saying that some people may be more comfortable talking about the front hole. Now, I use the word front hole in quotations yes. because it's it's um, specifically mentioned by the trust, by the NHS trust and by the Daily Mail. This is not a term I would ever use. No. One, the vagina is not a hole. Right. It goes somewhere. It's the birth canal. Mm. And, you know, in those specific circumstances where it goes is quite important. It goes yes. to the uterus where right. the baby is. It's not a hole. Right. Secondly, but, of course, if you're a trans woman, you haven't got a uterus. But this isn't about trans women. It will be about trans men and non-binary people who, of Sorry, course, I are all trans female. They're female. I never know what to call well, people, they're, they're to be fem- Well, it's getting more and more confusing, isn't, isn't it? it? But they're all female and they have vaginas. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to give birth. Right. The other thing is, it's yeah, not the front one. Yeah, you wouldn't be seeing one. a midwife, would you? It's the middle one. And you'd like to think that the midwives know which hole is which. Right. So as far as I'm concerned, this is advice that needs to get up the back hole. <laughs> it's just increasingly disorientating, <laughs> alienating to women. And I'm surprised they haven't changed the, the, the word midwife, to be honest. Well, I know. I mean, how and come maternity that's still services. There? How come, you know, midwife is still a word in these well, places? Don't don't hold your breath. Maybe that's maybe that's next. Now, maternity services at least should justify sensible and accurate anatomical language. And it shouldn't be sacrificed. For but this is the problem with the woke, right? gender neutral. The problem with, with all of this woke, you know, re uh, calibrating of everything is that mostly the words that we use in English are specific. You know, they refer to something. The words that we now have to invent to re-describe it are not specific, and they're quite often wrong, as you say. They don't mean anything. Mm. It doesn't tell you what you're actually talking about, which is why when you sometimes see these things written down, people are going, sorry? Yeah. I don't understand. Yeah. You're not being very clear about this. Well, the classic example of that, which is also in the Brighton Sussex University Hospitals NHS Trust advice, is chest feeding. Oh, now, yeah. I've had two babies and I breastfed them. And I have to say, in both cases, um, while it was a wonderful experience and I'm hugely glad I did it, there were some problems. Your listeners won't need to know, but there were some problems. Yes. And I would have felt very alienated and honestly annoyed if what I was doing was described as chest feeding. Mm. Now, chest feeding would imply that any old person could do it. It would imply you could do it. You've got a chest. I have. To me, it sounds like something out of a zombie movie, like Shaun of the Dead. You know, (laughs) because all I think of is a zombie eating somebody's chest. That's what I think of. Oh, my God, that's such a gruesome image. Isn't it? It's um, it's vivid. Um, that hadn't come to my mind, but thank you very much That's for planting that there. But I would have found it really alienating and offensive as a new mother mm. who was breastfeeding. If I'd come across language like chest feeding, or um, parent, or human milk, that's yeah. another one. Yeah. So I'm not 
like a flipping cow. It's just, it's just weird. <laughs> it's really weird. And so by trying to be inclusive to a very small number of people who may want specific language in their cases, it makes the vast majority of women who are just women and identify as women and mothers feel alienated uh. and confused. Uh. And I think especially medically, language should be should be simple. Instead of pandering to weird language like front hole, because like yeah. I said, it's not a hole and it's not the front. Instead, educate people to call it the vagina, which is what right. it actually is. Which is in no way offensive and particularly uh, uh, descriptive. I mean, that's what it is. It's, you know, I don't know. Where's, where are we all going? Where is the world going? I don't know. But the good news is next week uh, we'll be back on television. I might miss the bunker, though. You I've, might. I've got used to the bunker. The bunker's good. Well, you've got a bunker mentality now. You've only been here half an hour. And that's what happens, <laughs> yeah, I'm right? In, I'm indoctrinated. Stockholm syndrome is already <laughs> kicking in. It's amazing, actually. Never how... let me go. No, you can we'll just keep you in the corner until next <laughs> Tuesday, and we'll see you. But thank you, Laura, very much indeed. She's working on a new book, by the way, which we'll talk more about um, perhaps next week. Oh, maybe maybe not next week. I'd have to kill the nation if oh, I okay. told them. But in, right. due, in due course, in due it'd course. be lovely to talk you'll about tell it. Us, you'll tell us about it when you can. Yeah, I will. And I'll be very excited to see the studios, the new yeah. glittering studios I know. next week. I know. I've had a sneak peek. It's already looking pretty good. Uh, Laura Dodsworth, of course. Follow her on Twitter. Uh, read all her stuff. Uh, this is Talk Radio. Let's get some news headlines. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. And of course, it is now a Tuesday afternoon, April the 19th. In about, uh, say, three and a half hours from now, uh, Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, will get up in Parliament uh, and he will say sorry uh, to the nation. He'll say sorry to all the MPs in Parliament, in the House of Commons. He'll say sorry to Keir Starmer. He will not enjoy doing it because he doesn't like to say sorry. He doesn't really like to admit that he's done anything wrong. I still think in his heart of hearts he doesn't really believe that he has done anything wrong because I think the whole point of Boris Johnson is that he thinks he can do what he likes because that's how he's lived his life. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, you might not like it. You might say he's not the right man to be Prime Minister. I think there are pros, there are cons. I did call for him to go back at the end of last year when all of this was hitting him hard. Now I think that would be a mistake and I don't think he should go at all. And I take no um, problem uh, and I have no um, reason to be concerned that I've changed my mind because circumstances change and that's when you change your opinion about things and right now I certainly do not want anybody else in the Tory party running it I certainly don't want Rishi Sunak running it and I certainly don't want anybody from the Labour party running the country which I don't think they would anyway I really don't ever see the Labour party getting elected to run uh, anything at all in terms of a national government unless of course they got into bed with the SNP uh, who are showing more cracks really uh, than an old building right now Ian Blackford will have some kind of a job I would have thought calling for Boris Johnson to resign, given that his own leader, Nicola Sturgeon, was yesterday spoken to by the police in Scotland uh, because she broke her own rules and wasn't wearing a mask when she should have been. Uh, she's not going anywhere either. 0344 499 1000. Coming up in this hour, we'll speak to Bruce Williamson from the campaign group Rail Futures. We'll also hear from Grant Shapps, of course, who is the Transport Secretary, uh, because he's urging everybody to get back on a train. Now, that's all very well, but if it was up to me, I would have said to the train companies, it's all very well asking for government subsidy. It's all very well talking about getting people back on trains. But I'm afraid if you want that to work properly, you've got to actually run the trains. You know, until today, since last Thursday, you couldn't get a train uh, on the West Coast main line from London, Euston up to Glasgow Central. You couldn't get on one because there weren't any because they were apparently doing rope works of some kind. If you're on that train today, I'd love to hear from you because you might be telling me, actually, they're still doing works and it's all delayed and it's all dreadful. 03444991000. People also say, if you want people to get out of their cars, you've got to make train travel cheaper, haven't you? 
Surely. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about a great many other things as well. 0344 499 1000. This is the home of common sense. It is, of course, Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So Grant Shapps has made a bit of a video, uh, which I think we're able to play out to you um, very shortly. The point about the Transport Secretary is that he does make some cheesy videos. This you won't be able to see right now, but you'll be able to hear it. But if you go onto our Twitter feed, you'll be able to see it as well. But let's have a listen to Grant Shapps. I want to tell you about a great offer coming to you. It's the Great British Rail Sale, offering over 1 million advanced tickets to passengers with up to a massive 50% off. Why not take a trip to Edinburgh to take in the sweeping views from Arthur's Seat? Or if it's sea and sand that you want, well, head to Cornwall with its stretches of beautiful sand and crashing waves. Or visit the Lake District, the land of dancing daffodils and full of love from Wordsworth paradise. Or come down to London for a bit of retail therapy. Come down to London for a bit of retail therapy. Does he not know there's a cost of living crisis going on? Does he not know that people can't afford to come down to London for a bit of retail therapy because it's too bleeding expensive? Let's talk to Bruce Williamson from Rail Futures. Uh, Bruce, a very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Mike. How are you doing? Not bad at all. Not bad at all. I would have more sympathy with Grant Shapps. One, if he wasn't quite so cheesy. Uh, but also, <laughs> two, uh, if in fact the train services that he's so uh, enthusiastic about today were actually running over the weekend, which many of them were not. Yeah, I mean, it is a bit bizarre, that video, isn't it? It um, is. The, the point about trains not running, I, I suppose, you know, as ever, rail maintenance has to... Oh, I mean, I can't have lost you already. Yeah, there's no time that... Oh, no, you still got me? I still got you, but you're sort of cutting in and out. We'll, stay, we'll stick with it for a while. OK. Um, you know, rail maintenance has to be done at some point, sadly, and whenever it's done, it affects people. Um, but, yeah, your, your earlier point about the cost of living crisis um, is absolutely spot on here. This, you know, it's all well and good to, to reduce the, the price of rail travel as a sort of temporary gimmick. But, you know, those people who, you know, need to use the train every day to get to work, they're facing a cost of living crisis. This won't help them at all. And, um, uh, you know, th their cost of commuting remains outrageously high. And that's the problem that the government needs to address, I think. Yes, I think that's right. But also, I mean, the general infrastructure still um, is in need of some repair, is it not? I mean, I don't really know what's happened to Crossrail, to be honest, anymore. I presume they've stopped working on it. I don't know whether they're going to start working on it again. Um, what's going on with that? No, Crossrail is coming along nicely. Um, it, it's, you know, it is going to open in stages. I think part of it actually has already, and they're running test trains, and it's nearly complete. Uh, it has overrun, inevitably, as some of these massive engineering projects always do. Um, but, you know, again, I go back to my point that the sad fact is that engineering has to be done at some point, you know, and people don't like bus replacements. I understand that. But the alternative is to let the railways crumble until they, they're completely unusable. So, uh, well, surely, you know, that... the, surely the sensible thing to do, though, is to actually check when the trains are less busy, which now is not so much bank holiday weekends as it is regularly during the week because so few people are going to work on trains anymore. Well, it, it, yeah, the, the sort of commuting levels are back up to about 75%. But, um, you know, you can bet your bottom dollar that if well, they Well, they're did not, it... apparently, because according to Jacob Rees-Mogg, 
uh, there's all sorts of government departments with less than 30% occupancy in the offices. So that must have an effect. <laughs> Undoubtedly, but there are more workers than just those who work for the government, you know. Uh, you know, whatever the actual figure is. Yeah, but, some... there, yeah, but there are. But the point is, is that, you know, there's actually on a big, busy bank holiday weekend, including a cup final, two cup finals, in fact, at Wembley, one of mm. which involves Manchester and Liverpool, to not have a train, frankly, going down the West Coast is absolutely ludicrous. Yeah, but uh, again, you can bet your bottom dollar that if it was during the week, you'd have you'd be bombarded with calls from people who want to get to work who can't get to well, work. Well, no, so- because here's my point, you see. The point is now that we are more flexible, supposedly, about working from home, you would know that you couldn't go on a train to get to work. So you would say to your employer, I'm not going to come in uh, over the course of the next three days because there's no trains. What do you make of that? And they'll say, yeah, that's all right, that's fine. Um, and away you go. Makes a lot more sense than what they did. Uh, well, if your employer is Jacob Rees-Mogg, that would cut no ice because he's insisting that everyone goes back to the office now. He says the days of uh, slacking off at home are over. Yeah, well, yeah, but, but they're the, not the over. That's like, the, re- you, you... the reason he's saying that is because they're clearly not over because people are still doing it. <laughs> The point, the point is, like, you can't please all of the people all the time, you know. Yeah, uh, and, but unfortunately, uh, if you're in the railway business, you don't please anyone. Well, um, you, you do, because, uh, you know, people are travelling today. Trains are running. Some workers are using the trains today, so... Uh... Yes, they are, but they don't enjoy it very much, most of them. <laughs> you know, they're only doing it because they have to do it. It's the same reason people drive. The reason people drive, for example, if they've got a family of four and they need to go somewhere, is the trains are too expensive. Uh, yeah, and the cost of fuel is outrageous as well. I mean, I totally agree with you about the cost of rail travel. You know that that is a, a major issue, and we do have you know amongst the most expensive rail fares in Europe. And and this 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 scheme is good in that it sort of tempts people to try the railway. Yeah. Um, and if they sort of you know try it and like it, hopefully in the future they'll they'll try it more often and, and will help to get people back on the trains and that means more revenue for the rail industry and it makes the um, the, the rail system more economically viable, which of course is a good thing you know yeah. uh, and it's good for the environment. It's actually good for the roads because it reduces congestion and so on and so on and so on. But uh, you know for for those people who want to travel, there's. They say there's a million tickets, which sounds fantastic, but actually it's it's a bit of a drop in the ocean compared to the number of tickets that are sold every year. You know, so this 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 scheme, these million tickets will run out fairly quickly, uh, and I, I fear there will be quite a lot of disappointed people and those people who want to travel, you know, on on a train now. Of course, it's only advanced fares that this applies to. Right. If you want to travel now, then you've still got to pay that outrageous full price. Yes, that's the problem. And an awful lot of people tell me who use the trains on a regular basis up and down the country that you'll still quite often get to the station and your train's cancelled because there's no driver or because people are, you know, working from home uh, and they can't drive a train working from home. And uh, <laughs> an awful lot of trains up and down the country are absolutely rammed with people because there's two train loads of people on one train. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's you know. I, I'm not. I'm not defending cancelled trains, but I suppose you, you, you've got to ask why they've been cancelled, and and it's partly down to sort of lack of long-term investment in the railways. It's down to the fact that there aren't enough relief drivers because uh, the train operating companies can't afford to employ them because they're having the squeeze from the Department for Transport to to cut costs. So the the rail industry is sort of you know running on a on a shoestring budget cut to the bone so if anything goes wrong 
then it doesn't have that sort of spare capacity to to be flexible and to, and to cope with those sorts of problems. Yes. But that is a surprise in itself as well, isn't it? Because they've been doing this a long time. It's not like somebody suddenly went, why don't you try running a railway and see how that goes? I mean, you know, there was no Gatwick Express at the weekend. Uh, there was no Heathrow tube. I know that's a slightly different kettle of fish. Uh, mm. I'm not sure if there was a Heathrow Express or not. But, you know, that's just hopeless. It's bank holiday weekend, Easter holidays, school kids going away with their parents, and you can't get anywhere. No, I mean, I agree. You know, in an ideal world, um, <laughs> tra- trains would run, you know, to a perfect timetable all the time. Um, but it doesn't have to be an ideal world, Bruce. It just has to be not a completely shambolic one. Well, is is it shambolic? I mean, are, are rail... Well, the people re- that use trains all the time, and I'm not one mm. of them, will tell you that it is. Yeah, the, the over... I mean, I think... <sighs> The the overall reliability figures, the punctuality figures, are about average for Europe. So you can't sort of say, well, the French are doing it perfectly. You know, these these sort of things happen in France and Germany and 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 Denmark as well. You know, it's it's a sort of sad reality about about the railway. I mean, you you can, I suppose, mitigate it to some extent with with extra investment, extra capacity, newer trains, spare drivers, and so on. Yeah. But that's all money that the government is very reluctant to invest in the railways. So these are supposed to be privately run railway companies, aren't they? No, no, they're not. Uh, well, uh, well, they, they are. are. No, yeah, they are. But I mean, what about key... take Avanti for example, the people that run the West Coast yeah, yeah. Main Line? That's a private company, isn't it? It is. They're all private companies. Well, how much profit do they make? Very little, actually. Um, But the the key point is that they are they are contractors to the Department for Transport. So they're basically doing what they're told. They're kind of middlemen. They have very little flexibility when it comes to decisions about how many trains to run and and which trains to run. They don't own the trains themselves. Um, So, you know, the, the... the buck stops with the Department for Transport. It's it's really not much that the train operating companies can do about this. No, there isn't. But the point is, is they wouldn't be doing it if they were, you know, committing Harry Kiri and losing a load of money, would they? I, I, I don't understand your point. Well, my point is, is that the companies running these train services wouldn't be doing them if they were getting poorer as opposed to getting richer. No, yeah, they're making a profit, but the profit margins are pretty tight. I mean, there's, you know, there's an argument that says what you seem to be suggesting now is because they're making a profit, well, perhaps that profit will be better ploughed into the the railway itself. And that's an argument for nationalisation. Call me me old-fashioned. Or even (laughs) making the, the trains run better. You know, having more drivers. You know, they don't need to pay six-figure salaries to the, to the to the chief execs and the uh, and the board members and the trustees when they could actually hire more people to work on the front line. It's like the NHS. You know, the NHS has got plenty of money. They just don't spend it right. Uh, I'm not. I'm not going to get into the NHS because I'm not. An I'm not asking you. I mean, I'm not well, asking you to get into the NHS. What I am uh, saying to you is, is that surely uh, there could be some trimming that went on inside of the corporation and make the trains actually run because they've got enough drivers as opposed to not having enough drivers. I mean, yeah, I'm all in favour of of cutting excess pay for fat cat bosses, but I don't think compared to the costs of running the railway as a whole, it would make that much difference. Uh, but yeah, you know, uh, we we need a much more transformative big thing than. This sort of little, little tweaking, and again I come back. It, it's all in the hands of the government. Uh, everything that's well, yeah, almost everything that's wrong with the railways, uh, I can hand on heart blame the government for. But it's been wrong for a long time, hasn't it? I mean, they tried it. Yeah. When it was nationalised, it wasn't very good. Yeah. And then they denationalised it, and it wasn't very good. Um, and it's still not very good. And if they did renationalise it, it would still not be very good because they got the wrong people running it. I think. 
Uh, no, th- th- there may be some truth in that, but I mean, uh, you know, there are some good people running the railway, and I I know some good people who who are ex railway people. The the problem when it came to British Rail was that for decades, under governments of both political flavours, it was it was well, there's two problems. It was starved of investment. Um, so it was always running on a shoestring budget using clapped out trains. Ah. And secondly, the the because rail rail is a very sort of long term business, um, the rail industry to work well needs long term finance. And it's always when it comes to the government. It's short term. It's feast and famine. Yes, you can have the money. No, we've changed our mind. You've got to scrap that. And and that causes chaos. And we've seen it with, you know, Northern Powerhouse Rail and electrification of the Great Western and all these sort of rail schemes. Yes, it's on. No, it's off. Yes, we're, we're going for it. No, we're scaling it back. That's part of the problem that the railway has had to endure for decades. And what's coming uh, with this great British rail sale then? Where's that money coming from? Uh, I'm guess well. I'm guessing that the government. Well, I, I know. I've no doubt that ultimately, because the government pays for everything, pretty much, um, that they are financing this. It's, it's it's the taxpayers' bottom line. But it because all the tickets are off peak and advance, it will mean that they're filling empty seats basically on trains that would be running anyway. So the additional cost to the industry that the DFT has to bear is actually very little. So, you know, on that basis, one could argue, well, why don't we do it year round? You know, and, and uh, as someone who campaigns for cheap affairs on, on a long term basis, I, I would support that. Yeah, I suppose so. But of course, um, again, won't these all be bought up by the sort of middlemen and the, 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 the various train apps that you can use and the various kind of wholesalers that can sell you a ticket rather than actually like individual customers? Uh, well, hadn't they thought uh, of that? I, I, I hope not. I, I <laughs> you probably hope not. have. Um, that, that, yeah. Excellent. <laughs> um, I, I had a quick look on the website. You, you go to the National Rail website and it, it leads you to various train operating companies. So I think the, uh, these are being sold through the train operating companies' websites. Right. And I think that would prevent, you know, uh, ticket scammers buying up all of them. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, we'll what about HS2? So. What's going on with HS2? Well, that drags on, doesn't it? It's you see, this is an example of of what I was saying. It's on, it's off, feast and famine. Yes, we're going to build HS2. Oh no, we're going to cut the eastern leg. No, we're going to do this instead. And uh, again, it creates confusion in the public minds. It's a nightmare for contractors um, because they can't plan ahead and and they charge accordingly. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm very unhappy about the the long term. Uh, excess costs the price just keeps rising the 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 plans are not stable and and obviously right now we're we're in an industry where passenger numbers are down but i'm i'm very confident that long term all those passengers will bounce back and for that reason i think we need that extra capacity that hs2 will bring so it's a good thing but possibly not done in the best way possible no but when's it gonna be ready though uh probably just about within my lifetime (laughs) I mean, that's the other thing, isn't it? It's absolutely hopeless. I mean, I don't think I'll ever see it. I think I'll die before... You're a bit younger than me. I'm pretty sure I'll die before hs is finished. And I'm, I'd be pretty surprised if I even get a go on uh, Crossrail before I die as well. No, no, Crossrail is, is just a year or two away. That that is will it? be running... Yeah, yeah. That's, but it's been that's, a year or two away for quite a few years now. That's true, yeah, yeah. But I, I'm, I'm reasonably optimistic you will get to ride on Crossrail, Mike. Uh, and actually, also, who HS2. wants to go from Old Oak Common to Stratford anyway? Well, quite a lot of people, actually. Uh, I mean, you know, it's all the journeys in between and the other options that it it fills. It's 
really important. You know, it's, it's, there is a capacity crisis, well, across the railway generally, but particularly in London. So, so I've absolutely no doubt that Crossrail will be hugely successful, even though, you know, quite rightly, I've got no great desire to travel to Old Oak Common no. either. And how much is it costing? Uh, quite a lot of money. Right. Billions? More... How many? How many? I've billions? no idea. It's, it's billions. Well, yeah. So how do you find success then? Uh, the number of passengers using it. I see. Um, yeah, so it doesn't know, have to it, make a profit, really. Uh, it'd be nice, but uh, in fact, it might do. I mean, there are some some rail routes that are busy enough that they actually make a profit, notably the East Coast Main Line. But um, well, they uh, can't find anyone to run that, though, can they? They keep having to change operators. Yeah, that's right. That's that's well, why. Why, probably... why can't they find a decent company to run it? Uh, well, okay, because what happened is that. Um, the, the the operators who did run it overbid. Um, they had over-optimistic forecasts of, of how much revenue they could raise. And the Department for Transport, when assessing those bids, because it wants the most money or the least subsidy, always goes for the bid that is going to offer you know the least subsidy or the most money, which means that the bidders stretch themselves to get the bid, to get to get the contract, and then they realize that they've they've overbid for it and they go bust. Yeah, uh, it's happened three times. So, you know, one could argue, on the one hand, this is, you know, why privatisation was a nonsense. On another hand, you could argue that privatisation was so successful, it was the victim of its own success. Yeah, <laughs> you take your pick. Yeah, well, either way, it looks like a big fail to me, whichever way you yeah. cut it. But anyway, I suppose you and I will be having these conversations till we die as well. Bruce, thank you very will. much indeed. Bruce Williamson <laughs> there from Rail Future. I mean, it just doesn't get any better, does it? What's going on? What's wrong with the rail business in this country? If you travel on it, uh, you can probably tell me. Uh, we'll take some calls coming up after this. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.